Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this roundtable spotlight, I'm joined by my sister Kay Kellum, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the Star Wars trilogy. Now, there's two of them, so just to be clear, one, we may spoil both, but in this one, we're going to focus on the original trilogy. We're going to go through the movies in the order they were released. So we're starting with Star Wars A New Hope, the original movie. From 1977. Yes. Now, we just watched it on Blu-ray. It was the 1997 edition, so it had the special edition, the the computer effects and whatnot. It was very good quality and resolution for the people and for everything. I wasn't sure how well the remastering would look and if it would actually look as crisp as newer productions. Well, part of it was they remastered and digitized and replaced a lot of the effects. True, but I was looking at even the scenes like um, having dinner with mm-hmm. Uncle Owen and stuff. You know, it's just, it looked like a modern film scene. It was crisp, it was vibrant. Yeah. So it was it was well done in that respect. Now again, we watched the revised version, so there were a few story minor elements changed here and there. The scene with Han and uh, Jabba wasn't in the original. Thank you. Um, Greedo shooting at the same time Han did, that sort of a thing. Now, see, I actually asked you when that was coming up yeah. what I should expect to see because, of course, I didn't. I don't recall the movie from the theater, giving my age too away. Young. You would have been- Three. Three or four, I was going to say. Now we have to give my age away, yes. So I'm, I'm of that just wrong age group. To really have seen them and remember them in the theater. Whereas I think I was at like the perfect age. I was like seven or so when it came mm-hmm. out. I remember for one of the first three movies, our parents took all of us kids to the theater and it was a big deal. And I remember I fell asleep during the movie. Because again, I was just too young for really going to the movie and understanding what I was seeing. Uh, for me, uh, it was just a, a great time for movies. We had... This, we had Superman, and they were doing things that were just pushing special effects. Mm -hmm. Superman, you would believe a man can fly, and you did. Yeah. Here, robots, uh, the Wookiees, the the lightsaber, the spaceships, I mean, everything. The aliens in the Moss Eisley Cantina. Yes. Uh, The Land Cruiser. Uh, the Land Speeder. Land Speeder, yeah, yeah. You know, I have a fresh appreciation for when we were kids, probably the most disagreed over who actually owned this toy was the Star Wars Land Speeder. Mm-hmm. Because everybody wanted to lay claim to that really cool toy. And like I said, a fresh appreciation for why it was so special and awesome. Well, and this was the movie that really started the, the toy bonanza for films. Because Lucas retained the rights, I believe, to the merchandising. And just about every character in there, I think, even if they showed up for just a, a fraction of a second, you know, if they were on there long enough to freeze frame and say, ooh, look at that character, they probably have an action figure. 
Yeah. Whether you can still find it and afford it's another matter. And because of the age group I'm in, I saw these pretty much at the same time as the Mm -hmm. second trilogy. By the time I saw these movies and they sank in with me, everybody had told me the storyline to them a thousand times. And that's a shame because I think it's better off to experience the story in the film, not experience the film knowing the storyline. Yeah. You know, there were no surprises to me except maybe, so in which movie does Luke find out this or, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of when does this happen, not does this happen. Yeah. So, you know, I was watching the movie today and thinking, okay, Uncle Owen and listening to some of the things he says, he clearly seems to have known Luke's father in some context. Mm-hmm. And I found that interesting. A He wanted to keep him on the farm to shelter him like he was afraid if he goes out there, he, he could get exposed to these temptations. And I don't want to risk what happened to his father happening to him. There is the question of how much did Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru know about Luke's parents, mm-hmm. about the history, how did he come to be there and stuff, that in the context of just this film, the questions don't really come up in the context of the greater picture. Yeah. The other films, particularly the original, the, the prequel trilogy, certainly come up. Um, and it's one of those that what you, you listen for now versus what you would have listened for originally. Yeah. Because I'll admit, when we were starting the film, I was sitting there thinking, okay, you know, C-3PO, first one to have lines in the movie. Mm, mm-hmm. Stormtrooper, first human to have lines in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and spoiler, Darth Vader, first Skywalker to have lines in the movie. Yes. Yeah, well, and Skywalker, or sorry, Darth Vader shows no um, no attachment of any sort to either Princess Leia or Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. No inclination towards mercy or anything. No even recognition. Yeah. And, of course, that changes over this trilogy. And no even acknowledgement of uh, C-3PO. Mm. Of course, by that point, he would have seen thousands of protocol droids. True. And this happened to be the one he built, which we know in the prequel trilogy. So you you see different things based mm-hmm. on what you know. And it's that's it, why it's fun to rewatch the film. Well, and I was watching it with an eye towards, does Obi-Wan ever say anything to give Luke or Leia a hint? Don't get attached to one another in the wrong way. No, certainly not. Uh, And Obi-Wan actually lies to to Luke about his parentage. What? When Luke asks about his father, he's told the story of Darth Vader and how Darth Vader betrayed his father and killed him. But see, I I see why you see it as a lie, but I wonder if it's simply a different interpretation of what happened. That's certainly how he, he bills it later. Well, because I would view it as, you know... He's clearly the, being misled. Oh, yes. He's he's being led to believe your father is dead and Darth Vader was a separate person. Yes. But I think in Obi-Wan's eyes, Darth Vader is the personification of the evil and the dark force. The dark side of, yeah, Anakin. Yeah. And I really think to Obi-Wan... It's viewing the two halves of the one person and Mm -hmm. the belief that Darth Vader killed all there was of Anakin that he knew. 
Well, and there's an aspect of this was written without the full game plan being known. Because there's reference of ancient religion for the Jedis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just based on what we know just from here, Mm -hmm. you know, Obi-Wan was a Jedi. Darth, you know, before falling Mm -hmm. to the dark side was a a Jedi. Luke is Mm 16-ish. So... The Jedi Order is maybe 20 years out of fashion. Yeah. but Ancient? ancient, No. No, but ancient as in how far back does it go? When was it established is how I took it. You know, is it like Confucius? Confucius? I see what you're saying. It's it's got a long history. It's recently fallen out of favor, but it existed for the millennia. So it's an ancient one and you're sticking to the old ways, not adopting the new technological stuff. Is it like Hinduism or Scientology? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I, I see what you're saying. I hadn't thought of it in that way. But I did find it interesting that they were saying roughly 20 years ago, all the Jedis, except Darth Vader, were killed. Mm-hmm. And of course, we get to see that in the prequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. Having the uh, revised special effects, I'll be honest, took a little away from the film for me. Interesting. How so? Because I felt there was a little bit more of a... Uh, uh, not realism or life to the the physical effect versions, but there was an almost antiseptic version at times. You know, when they're flying in the trench on the, the thing and you just have the blur of the background, mm. he's almost perfectly, you know, still kind of ships flying through it or whatever. There was an aspect of uh, uh, chaos or something of that sort that was missing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if they were to redo it now, it would be better, as we'll see in the subsequent films. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, to me it was clear when they were going from, particularly going into Mos Eisley, the let's add this scene to show some cool stuff that we couldn't do back then, to let's show the footage from back then. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain je ne sais quoi or something yeah. about the, the, the physical effect stuff that was just kind of cool and, and authentic or whatever, that while the special effects are just brilliantly done, it's easier to have a higher expectation of them because mm-hmm. of the tools, even in 97, that were available. I mean, hell, what's available now is, is astounding. Well, and there's something to be said for watching the original movies in their original form and recognizing that that is what blew away millions of people's minds that's what grabbed the audience whereas what we're seeing isn't actually what sucked them in well i've got the dvd versions and specifically bought the blu-ray so we could watch for this because i wanted to see them in the higher resolution and whatnot and i knew it'd be the special edition Mm -hmm. because the last time i'd seen the dvd stuff while you had the old school effects you had the very clear matting around the ships and stuff like that so you mm. have the x-wing flying and there was a box of, around it of slightly lighter sh- space than the rest of space and it's just as our uh equipment for home viewing mm. has gotten more sophisticated mm-hmm. you know it's made things that just weren't obvious at the time mm-hmm. or we didn't know to look for at the time mm-hmm. you know we're a much more sophisticated audience in terms of special effects story and expectations yeah. Then certainly back in 77. Yeah. And again, this was absolutely groundbreaking at the time. There were not a plethora of films and TV shows of its sort. 
mm. uh, the the use of the hero's journey, which this follows pretty faithfully. Well, it just wasn't as common. It's funny because or it, as obvious, yes, and it starts with that long section of text that you read. Well, it opens like a storybook almost. Yeah, and it's you've got okay, this is Star Wars as that's fading to the background. It's like you've got this conveyor belt of text going to the background. Yeah. And then the the classic, okay, we've got space, pan down, now we're into the action. Yeah. And it's it's a signature opening for Star Wars films. Oh, definitely. But there was a part of me that, as I got to the end of reading that, I was thinking, and those were the scenes we didn't film. <laughs> well, it allowed them to kind of give a little background, give a little context, in three short paragraphs. Yes. And established this and is an existing world. Yes. And it gave the impression that if we had gotten part three, because this is part four, that we would have been following right on the heels of it, which, mm -hmm. of course, we don't. It's mm -hmm. a generation later. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. The other thing cinematography-wise that is different from most films of, of our era is they use wipes and transitions. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had commented at one point when uh, one of the wipes was coming from the bottom up for the scene transition. Oh, and C-3PO had been damaged. Yeah, it's like they're lifting him up and that frame just goes away with him. Yeah, the way they did that, it looked like he'd been cut in half and lost his legs. Classic uh, old school film technique. If you look at a lot of the John Ford westerns, mm -hmm. some of these exact shots and cuts are lifted from there. Yeah. When we see uh, uh, Owen and Baru's place with the smoke or whatever, mm -hmm. I forget if it was the Searchers or which John Ford uh, film it was, almost lifted straight out. Well, and I loved uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru's place. Yeah, it was interesting because it's basically you've got this flat terrain and they like dug two stories down. Yeah. Which I'm thinking that's great, unless for some reason it floods, it rains, or, or you otherwise fill that in. Yeah. You know, you get trapped in your home with no way out that way. But for that kind of desert planet or whatever, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. They had the one little igloo that sheltered the stairs that brought mm -hmm. you out at ground level. And I just thought, you know, that's probably one of the most creative dwellings I've seen in film, on TV, anywhere. Well, and it also allows for, since so much of it is below the horizon, you may not see anything on the horizon, but that doesn't mean there's nothing out there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, some of the visuals, some of the design is just brilliantly done. Well, and while we're talking in terms of effects and less obvious, if you will, things, the music. John Williams' music, you can't go wrong with that. There were a few places where it kicked in a little louder than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I find these days trying to get a home stereo adjusted to where you've got high enough uh, vocals for the, the dialogue and low enough of the explosions and the, the orchestration mm. yeah. to get a good balance uh, for what I like is, well, is a little challenging. I mean, you, there are so many parts of the Star Wars soundtrack from the whole two trilogies combined, really, that you you think Star Wars and you're going to think of seven or eight songs, really. Yeah. But when they entered Moss um, Eisley Cantina, I loved the music there, too. The Cantina music, Vader's March, 
the, uh, the, the, the classic Star Wars theme. There are so many aspects that, for our generation, mm-hmm. are just signature sound cues. Mm-hmm. And there are other films that have a lot of those. I don't know of any other that has necessarily as many. Mm-hmm. But between, again, phenomenal effects, story types, uh, things we've never seen before, all the aliens uh, and the music stuff, and being evocative both through the, the, the hero's journey and through the use of the, the wipes and other Western film techniques mm-hmm. that had since fallen out of favor. It made for a very different but classic kind yeah. of movie. I was going to say, it, it called back to a lot of things we understood. Well, and even if we as kids hadn't seen them, they were time-tested movie techniques. Yeah, yeah. You know, what had enthralled the previous generation, great, let's put a sci-fi window dressing on it. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, Han Solo as a character, even he has an arc towards being a better character, or at least showing us his better side. He does. There are aspects of this movie where, classic though it may be, great film though it may be, has some weaknesses in the writing. We never really see why he evolves or understand why he evolves. It's just, he didn't want Luke to get all the credit. I mean, it's still kind of a selfish glory hound kind of a thing. That's what he says, but I think part of it is almost a, he left and felt a little guilty about leaving a kid behind to fight a battle. (coughs) I agree with that, but that's what we read into it. Yes. Versus what we're shown. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of times when Luke gets uh, Leia out of the prison cell. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luke didn't know Ben and Obi-Wan were the same thing, yet Leia instantly did. Well, uh, Ben had said Obi-Wan was a name he hadn't answered to in a long time at one point or mm-hmm. something to that effect. But you're right. Leia didn't know, to our knowledge, that those two were the same. Shortly thereafter, she shoots the, the grate for the, the garbage thing and tells Flyboy to go down there. How did she know Han was the pilot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of times where the characters are acting with knowledge they shouldn't have. Yeah. Not in a plot-ruining sort of a way. No, but it's something that happens to a lot of writers. Forgetting that just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean your characters yes. have the knowledge. And it's an easy problem to have. Mm-hmm. Or losing track of where you'd left certain characters. Mm-hmm. So, it... It doesn't have major pitfalls in that area, but there are a couple of things that if you're paying attention, it's like, hmm, they, they could have tightened that up just a little bit or, or tweaked it a little to, to not have that. Mm-hmm. It also, again, very, you know, it, it's one of the, the, the examples they actually use in the Hero's Journey book, mm-hmm. where they're going through the, the 12 phases, the reluctant hero, this, that, and the other. And uh, Star Wars, and I forget what the other films they tend to use are, but it just, you know, fits in lockstep. And this is a story structure that has has been around for pretty much forever mm-hmm. you know it's time tested it and i'm not saying star wars is lesser because of it i think it's greater because of yeah it. it's got something that resonates with us for whatever reason mm-hmm. we're familiar with these techniques this structure of the story you know um and the others i mean follow it uh to a much much lesser degree because, again, they're continuing a story. Yeah. But even, I think, the first of the, the prequels follows it pretty closely. Yeah. Um, 
Although I could be wrong on that. It's been a little while since I've seen that. But people, kids coming at it today and seeing this as their first Star Wars film, which hopefully they would if they're raised properly, they're going to have different cultural uh, background and expectations than we did when this. Ch- there was nothing like this before. Yes. Yeah. You know, so hopefully they would resonate with it, but it certainly wouldn't feel as groundbreaking, as innovative, both from uh, kind of the story level, the sci-fi level, or the the special effect level. Well, and it's funny you say the sci-fi level, because as you were saying that, the first thing that came to my mind is you almost have to tell a kid watching it today, this was in theaters before a sci-fi channel existed. Well, this is where the lightsaber came from. Yeah. This is its origin. Yeah. You know, those kinds of, of it's, it's almost a cliche sci-fi weapon now. Yes, definitely. But for kids who 24 hours a day can turn on the sci-fi channel. Or, or flip through Netflix or yeah. just all the other TV channels and whatnot. Yeah. There's so much science fiction available to them. Whereas there was a time when it seemed like you had to wait for good movies to come out. Well, this was, what, eight years after Star Trek had gotten off the air? Yeah. It was what uh, more or less inspired uh, Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Star Trek going back to uh, to feature, or going to feature films. So there was a period where uh, earlier in the 70s, I don't know where you would have found a good space sci-fi show you could argue doctor who sci-fi but it's time travel it was pretty much earth-based i believe at that point even Mm -hmm. so unlike now where you know we've got how many star trek shows to to pick from stargate um you know you've got uh uh, firefly uh uh, farscape uh the newer Battlestar galactica Mm -hmm. i mean you could just rattle off a list of 30 or 40 or 50 seasons of television sci-fi you know space yeah. shows yeah whereas there was none of that to be had and even if there were you couldn't get to it because it's just well, what's on the tv at the moment yeah and so for for star wars to come in and i think when it was released is a big factor mm. because at that point if you wanted to kind of relive the uh the movie without going back to the theater your choices were a comic book adaptation when it finally came out, mm-hmm. the toys, mm-hmm. um, years later, I think, the, uh, the the VHS version and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not like today where shortly after the thing leaves the theaters in a couple of months, it's on Netflix, I can get the DVD or the Blu-ray, you know, whatever, and watch it ad nauseum. Yeah. You know, so there was a certain uh, different type of, of experience back then. Mm-hmm. And again, it just had some some great visuals, uh, even though some of it were, was absolutely ludicrous. The whole swinging across with Luke and Leia and stuff uh, in you the Death Star. You know, I wondered why uh, Luke and Han both put on those neon white belts when they got out of the Stormtrooper uniforms. Well, if you remember back at the beginning of the film, Luke had a utility belt of sorts. He had a brown one. It had pouches and stuff on it. So, okay. okay, now how they got their their outfits after they got out of the garbage thing, I mean, presumably they'd left them back on the Falcon. Or they were wearing them under the Stormtrooper uniforms. It would have been a tight fit, but that's what we're led to believe. Must have been, because how else would they have had them? Mm-hmm. 
yet they're still dry. Mm-hmm. That is one impressive stormtrooper uniform. It's about the only thing you can do. And it's dry despite being in a wet trash heap and guys presumably having gotten sway. Just saying. Well, and Luke was submerged many times. <laughs> so that was, yeah. Yeah. That was that. But presumably he would have had his own. Having had the stormtrooper one, one, why does it have the little grappling hook? And two, how did he know it had the grappling hook? And know exactly which pouch to go to for it on the first try. Yeah. And what kind of a design for the Death Star is it where you've got these things where periodically you just go through a bulkhead and you, if you don't stop immediately, you go falling, I don't know how far. Yeah. What was your comment at one point? Oh, it was, yeah. It was as Obi-Wan was starting to get to shut off the uh, the tractor beam stuff where he's got to go out. On the the walkway out into the middle of nowhere, around the edge of the, the thing, because they put the controls on the far side with like a four-inch ledge to, 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 to walk around. Yeah. And I'm like, this was back when railing was just really expensive. And I uh, told you, I'd been watching for the bridge with no railing to the circular thing in the middle scene that's really high up for no reason, because I'm pretty sure every movie has one. When they first used the Death Star weapon against Alderaan, mm -hmm. did you catch the scene, because it was, it was just flashed and it was gone, where the Death Star gunners are in the thing and the, the, the beam is, is in the, sh the, the Death yes! Star coming up. And they're like, just right there. Yeah. I mean, they take two steps back, they're falling. I was actually tempted to scream out, they never want to have children. <laughs> I just didn't Whoever think Whoever designed the me. Death Star safety feature is not important. <laughs> it's it's just a, a bit of a joke but it, it's it's so ludicrous mm -hmm. you know again why do you have these big gaping things why do you have well and i think someone needs to check the stopwatch on the death star because when the audio announcement says one minute and the visual announcement says nine minutes you got a problem which on the screen for how soon until we can attack the rebel base? Oh, this was uh, actually, um, yeah, yeah, because we get the countdown clock both from the Death Star itself and uh, the rebel base on Alderaan or uh, on uh, uh, Yavin or whatever. As they're uh, so, first off, you've got this Death Star that we never actually see move. That's true. So it we still have no idea how, what its propulsion method was. No, it's magic. But somehow it got to Alderaan pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. From uh, uh, um, Tatooine, where Mos mm -hmm. Eisley is. So from Tatooine to, to Alderaan's former location, now former location, uh, to uh, Yavin 4, mm -hmm. uh, in short order. Then it takes 15 minutes to orbit. get around, to orbit the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, damn. Mm -hmm. And they didn't tell us that the rebels knew it was in orbit, but they just magically knew it was time to rush to their planes. Yeah, that was one of the things that kind of bothered me. I mean, Leia had mentioned we're probably being followed or tracked mm -hmm. or whatever. Yes, yes. But never follows up on that. Yeah, well, and I loved Han Solo's, so no, not my Millennium And if Falcon. they had just simply ended that scene with Chewie coming in, growling, and then putting out his hand that has a clear tracking beacon on it. That would have been funny. And just an exchange of glances. Mm-hmm. That would have worked great. Yeah, that would have been funny. You know, so, again, characters acting with some knowledge they shouldn't have had, or, or maybe some stuff hit the cutting room floor, whatever. 
Uh, it, it's again great film. Oh, it is, but not a perfect film. Yeah. And I think if it had come out as is, even with improvements, but not having the the history it does, if it came out today, I don't know that it would have had the impact. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. I'm sure people listening are thinking, well, the new Star Wars films, it's it's sold out already. It's not even opening for, you know, weeks or months or you know, whatever. Yeah, but it's built on the previous six. Exactly. Previous six, um, zillions of comic books, books, video games, um, you know, uh, cartoon TV shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is its own media empire Mm -hmm. well we watched uh the sci-fi show dark matter and in one of the episodes uh six had promised five i'll hang out with you later and she comes and knocks on his quarters it's later do you want to go see star wars 36 yeah well um Spaceballs is a spoof of it Mm -hmm. robot chicken and family guy have both done spoofs on it there's lego versions of it i mean yeah. It's it's been riffed on a lot mm-hmm. because it is what it is. Yeah. You know, it's it's a cultural touchstone for uh, the planet. And not just America, I mean the whole world. Yeah. And it was the right movie at the right time, I think. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a really good movie. It holds up well. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there are some things that could be a little better, whatever, but nothing where I'm thinking, geez, that's just... Okay, other than the lack of railings throughout the Death Star. <laughs> Other than that, nothing where I'm thinking, geez, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well. There are a couple of things I would have liked to have been established a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly where are those guns in the Millennium Falcon? How do you go yeah. up this ladder and- And suddenly- simultaneously down that ladder? Well, and de- not up and down, I get that. But then when you're in the gunner's chair, gravity <sighs> is, has reoriented? Yeah, apparently. And you fly all over the place and get dizzy. Good thing they don't make a mess. Uh, you know, they're trained pilots, whatever. But to me, just, it seemed like when we get the shot of Han and Luke looking back at the other, mm-hmm. that they're on a perpendicular gravity plane mm-hmm. to the ladder that they had climbed to to get to those two guns. Yeah. And just seeing a little better of where they were positioned on the ship. I mean, presumably it's in the center of the Falcon. I don't know. Yeah. I like to have a better feeling... Of the layout of the ship, of the, the, the physical space. Yeah. But that's just me. Again, one of the brilliant things they did with the film is they had things that could become toys. Yes. The lightsaber, in particular, is its own little cottage industry. Um, ironically, I don't think the uh, the blasters Mm-mm. are as ubiquitous as I would have expected. But they're not as unique. True, true. But they're also something that you could do a Nerf dart gun version of. Definitely, but almost every franchise has something like that. Yes. You know, and in this movie, uh, in the battle between Darth and uh, Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan's lightsaber seemed to kind of fluctuate in strength and size it, based on how strong the force was within him at that moment. I couldn't tell if it was that or just the angle we were getting or if it was an aspect of the special effects. There were one or two places where it looked like the lightsaber was supposed to be a flat blade. I've always considered it more cylindrical. Mm-hmm. The part I loved about that that fight was um, Obi-Wan looks over, sees Luke, kind of smiles a little, does a little, you know, meditation-y kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ascending or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
robe drops, he's gone. Mm-hmm. And then Darth is like poking his foot at the robe, yes. so like making sure he's not hidden in there. Yes. Like he shrank down or something. <laughs> yes. Which, you know, these days after an Ant-Man movie, okay, I get it. But uh, <laughs> it was just kind of funny. Uh-huh. Where is the force in that robe? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, this was the movie that started it all. Well, and the one character that I heard say, may the force be with you, was Han Solo. I thought that was funny. Yeah. There was that. Um, Obi-Wan said, the Force will be with you always, and, mm-hmm. but not that iconic line. Mm-hmm. We got, uh, I've got a bad feeling about it, from Luke in the the, uh, the Falcon, Han in the Trash Compactor, C-3PO at least once <laughs> or twice. Of course, that's his normal mode. I love C-3PO. There's an aspect of him that particularly having seen, and this will be a spoiler for, a minor spoiler for another film, having seen uh, Interstellar mm. with the trust settings. Yes. It's like, what's your paranoia setting? <laughs> yes. The other thing I don't know if I'd picked up on or not in previous viewings, but because apparently C-3PO I think is going to have like a red arm in the new films, the uh, the bottom of his right leg was silver, whereas the rest was golden. I hadn't picked up on that. Um, I'll see if it's in the the next film uh, we watch and stuff. I'll point that out. But there were also a lot of times uh, 3PO and R2 were just very dirty. Mm-hmm. And goes towards kind of a used technology mm-hmm. for this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from apparently the star having been built, there's no signs of any uh, manufacturing or building for droids or something like that other than scavenging from the Jawas. Yeah. So there's a whole question in my mind about the technology level of this galaxy, uh, mm-hmm. particularly when you go to the comics and books that span millennia and have pretty much the same technology throughout. Yeah, well, you know. I, I wouldn't expect a prehistoric lightsaber, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that. But uh, again, with the new films coming out, this just we had to go rewatch these films. Yeah. No, I I definitely felt that way. And I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to rewatching the other ones. Uh, this again uh, is the classic trilogy. I think it's got a pureness to it that the the prequel is lacking. But I'll also say that there are aspects of the prequel trilogy I think are just stronger. Mm-hmm. Some of the effects, some of the fight scenes, some of that kind of stuff, some of the writing. But you couldn't have gotten any of those without this. And this really set up the world, set up the. The energy, the status quo, the the tone, the style. Yeah. And again, I think for our generation, it just totally clicked um, in in a way that almost no other property has before or since. Harry Potter, maybe. Yeah. Even that, I'm not so sure. We won't know for another 30 years. Yeah, that's true. You know, this is something that so many decades after this film, it's not just oh, remember, you know, kind of thing. It's an ongoing concern. And again, uh, the the Star Wars films and the Marvel uh, comics at one point recently was like 20% of their monthly comic sales for the top 300. Yeah. It's still a very, very strong property. Yeah. And deservedly so. So anything else for this one or should we move on to the next film? Next film. Cool. So we have just finished watching The Empire Strikes Back on Blu-ray. This is, I believe, the special edition because we had the, the, the windows in Cloud City and uh, mm-hmm. the more modern uh, computerized effects versus the original stuff. I don't think there was any major 
shift in the plot or anything between the versions. I think it was more just the visuals. I'd be curious to watch the original version, the part near the very end where uh, after Luke and Darth, or about the time they're having their fight, where I commented to you that the background didn't feel quite right to me. It looked very much like a painting. Yeah. Well, in the they had matte painting, paintings in the yeah. original one, so that could have been there. There was also a scene right around then when Leia, Chewie, and Londo were running around one of the corridors, and it felt very much like a kind of a, a compositing effect for them, mm. which seemed odd because, I mean, yeah, they had the set. Well, it's funny because usually when they do the matte paintings, it doesn't strike me as a, that looks like a very artificial painting. Yeah. And in that one, it was like maybe the perspective was off, or maybe I've gotten a little too spoiled to how three-dimensional so much of the modern paintings in films look. That could be. And that one was so flat, but it was trying to do the very long tube down to the bottom of Cloud City. Mm-hmm. I would like to see them do a version on Blu-ray or something. And really, once everybody gets to like 4K screens or something, this would work better. Where you've got kind of the original in one frame, the special mm. edition in another, and kind of things highlighting the differences or something. Mm-hmm. Something where you could do kind of a compare and contrast. Yeah. You know, oh, those things weren't in the background. We didn't have the windows in Cloud City. Oh, they added this scene. They dropped this scene. Because there would be times one or the other of the things would just go blank for a little bit. Yeah. As they, they changed up the scenes or something. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, I get Lucas wanting to fine tune it, to tweak it or whatever. But there's also a certain amount of it was what it was. Mm-hmm. And the noodling with it is a little kind of counterproductive in some cases. Yeah. You know, Flip side to that, we're never going to get like a, a Blu-ray release of Babylon 5, the TV show, because the effects would need to be updated. Yeah. And they were done for that size, you know, resolution at the time. And that was, you know, what, uh, almost 20 years ago now. Yeah. So I get the need to, to, to revamp, to re-render mm -hmm. the effects, but that's different from what Lucas did here of, in some cases, changing the story, particularly in the first film. With, you know, uh, Han and Greedo and stuff. But here it was it was more just eye candy, I think. Yeah. But there's something to be said for uh, having it be as much of a, a restoration and whatnot than a, a remastering, reimagining of certain aspects. Well, and like we said with the first one, you know, I came into these Blu-rays hoping that they had digitally remastered in so much as making sure it was a good clear crisp picture mm -hmm. for the higher resolution i hadn't read up on the back of the dvd or sorry the blu-ray so much to realize they'd redone the effects i had known they had redone the effects because they had done that even long before blu-ray existed because bef between this trilogy and the prequel trilogy they put it back in the theaters with new effects mm -hmm. And that was as, I think, as much to ramp up ILM for, you know, can we do what we want to do in the, the prequel trilogy? Mm -hmm. So that makes sense for them to have gone through that route, whatever. But I don't know. There's something about the old school practical effects that was part of what made this trilogy so amazing at the time. Well, and there's also the fact that in 1980 with this film and 1977 with the previous film, 
they blew the minds of millions of Americans. Well, and they did that, though, with little models of these X-Wings and whatnot that they would literally blow up. Yeah. You know, so there was a certain realism to that, that with the, the computer effects and whatnot, while crisper, while cooler, while cleaner, lacks a, thir- a certain almost authenticity to it. Well, I mean, I guess from my perspective, there's this inclination to say in the current film they could have the one coming out in 2015 they could have said okay we're just going to do a remote controlled r2d2 oh absolutely you know and i'm sure there's a generation out there who can't understand why there's an actor's name kenny baker associated with r2d2 why is there not a special effects team associated with R2-D2? And it comes down to microcontrollers and some of those things that we take for granted today. We're just not really around. And R2, I mean, he's the size of a trash can. It's, it's pretty big working space, but not big enough for what they needed to do. Big enough to put a person in there. And again, simpler solution. Well, and when you think about what that person is doing inside of there with minimal sight lines, etc., quite remarkable. Well, I believe Grant Imahara from Mythbusters was one of the guys who worked on the the robotic R2 unit for the prequel films. So with those, I think they may have already gone down that route to a degree. But then you're at the mercy of, okay, we're shooting this. Where do you put the the people running the remote controls for it? They got to be close enough both to see and to control it. And just what if something goes wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, so having some some fallback positions or whatnot. I was reading somewhere. I, I read through an IMDb last night the the trivia pieces for both this film and the next one. And I think there was one or two things where they just had to change some stuff up just because well they got there and you know the the effects for this that or the other weren't quite working. Makes you know, sense. The, it, it, with this one, with the the Hoth battles and stuff, for some of it, there was literally a blizzard where they were filming. That was not effects. That was nature. Mm. So what they would do is they would have, okay, uh, Mark Hamill, you, you go walk out there. You're, you're Luke. We're going to stay here in the, the hotel lobby and just shoot through the doors. Oh, God. So how much of that's true? How much of that's just stuff people put on IMDb? I don't know. But- well, Anthony Daniels at a convention appearance was saying about the first movie, uh, he's C-3PO. He was so excited. It was his first film where he had a cast chair mm. with his name on it. Yeah, yeah. And when the scene would be over and they'd be between scenes and everybody would be in their cast chairs, he'd take off the head and the mask and then he'd put on a robe so he wasn't reflecting sun off of that C-3PO metal and he couldn't sit in the C-3PO armor, if you will. It wasn't that flexible, yeah. Right? So he would lean on his cast chair and he was just so thrilled to have that chair and about the fourth day of filming, his chair stopped getting put out. And he was really disappointed. And he asked somebody, what happened to the cast chair for Anthony Daniels? And they said, well, it's the darndest thing. That actor never showed up, but the stand-in for Obi-Wan kept leaning against it. Because <laughs> with a robe on, yeah. <laughs> yes. And you know, just one of those stories that sticks with you of a that's what filming it must have been like for some of those guys. Well, and Anthony Daniels is one that I'm sure a lot of people, like many of the actors in, in Star Wars, people would just not recognize at sight, but man by voice. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, you've told me a story where you were at a convention. I think it was at MegaCon or whatever, because it was uh, you had gone to dinner with somebody, and it was at MegaCon, and uh, a friend offered to drive me over to where the Plant Hollywood was, which is over by one of the theme parks. And you know, when you're at these conventions, you get used to the people in costume and everything, and. 50 or 100 stormtroopers walked by us, and I I was oblivious because mm-hmm. I was so used to it. At a convention, that happens. You know, and even though we're off at Planet Hollywood, I was still in that convention mind frame, so I didn't even notice. But I looked up, and I said, oh, my God, there's Darth Vader and Chewbacca. And my friend is looking at me, pointing at just a whole bunch of normal civilian people, and he's like, what are you talking about? Because, of course, they're looking for people in costume. Right, and I'm pointing out David Prowse and Chewbacca. And uh, uh, Peter uh, Mayhew. Peter Mayhew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Peter Mayhew is uh, just a, a really tall guy. Yes. Chewbacca, go figure. And he's head and shoulders above Han. Uh, Harrison Ford's not a short fellow. He's, I think, about six feet, six one maybe. Sounds about right. And there were a couple of shots in here where you could tell Carrie Fisher, who's about five one or something, about a foot shorter. It was clearly a foot shorter. Yet in other scenes... Okay, she's about five, six inches shorter because she's standing on an apple crate or something. Yeah. And just that's some of the stuff they do just to, to get some of the shots to, to kind of line up and, and work. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, this is generally considered to be the best of the films. Interesting. And that's that's kind of my reaction, too, because it's good, mm-hmm. but there are a couple of places where- you know, like the ending for one of them. It's just, oh, well, okay, we got to go find Han, and just kind of the movie ends. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't have a, a strong closure like the first film did and like many of the others do. It felt like a, we're going to continue this story in the next movie versus this story is done, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Some of the fight scenes, particularly with Luke and Vader and Cloud City, it's just suddenly they're in another location. Yeah. You know, there are things, it, it didn't seem to have quite the strong narrative flow that the first film had didn't have the classic structure the first film had it didn't have really some of the amazing amazing set pieces we're going to have in the next film i really enjoy luke's time with yoda but it's a little disconcerting how much time he spends away from the rest of the main cast there's only one scene where i think all of the cast is in the same room at the same time yeah and even that, I would argue, doesn't have all of the cast because it's before Londo's introduced. Agreed. And Londo is clearly being set up potentially as the Han Solo replacement. He is. And Londo's an interesting character because I asked you out loud several times, do you trust him at this point? Mm-hmm. Is he as bad as he seems at this point? You know, because at one point... He clearly seems like the scoundrel, we've been told he is, and untrustworthy. But on the other hand, he is having the ship repaired. C-3PO's parts, which were up in the quarters of Han and Leia, have mysteriously, presumably by Londo, been taken down to the cell they're being confined in. He's doing a number of things he doesn't have to do. Yeah. Now, and I'm going to spoil uh, a five-issue miniseries uh, that starred Londo that just came out recently from Marvel. Because we have to spoil comic books, too. It's our well, thing. It's it's relevant because, and normally I wouldn't spoil comics because, you know, it's people might be waiting for the trade, whatever. Uh, yeah. But 
with the Lando Calrissian miniseries for five issues, it really did a good job explaining him, Lobot, the guy with the, the mm. earpiece headset thing, and kind of Lando's backstory as just the 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 scoundrel, the rogue, the schemer who's always trying to work that deal mm-hmm. and always essentially digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, and that's what came across in this movie. So I'm kind of glad that that's what they capture in the comic. It was one of those where his basic thing was he had to go uh, do something to get out of trouble with this one guy, which led to this, which led to this, which led to him stealing a, a cruiser, which happens to be the Emperor's, which happened, you know. Yeah. And just, it, it's like, you think it can't get worse, give it a minute. And with Lobot, his assistant, who I don't think says a single word in the movie, much less gets named. Agreed, but it's well used. It's well used. In the comic, they establish that he has like this kind of almost computer virus that's slowly eating away at his humanity. Hmm. Almost kind of a Borgish sort of a thing, which you look at him, you kind of get, you know, kind of a thing. I was going to say, in the movie, he comes across not quite as robotic, but as lacking in uniqueness and personality until no one but Londo is looking. And then they share eye contact and there's that subtle communication of, yeah, we're on the same, same wavelengths. We're going to do this. And the comic really builds into that. But Lobot is one of many, many characters in the Star Wars films that are there. They do their piece. That's it. But there's really not even a name for the character, a race, a backstory, anything other than literally what did you see them do? Yeah. That has just taken on a life of their own outside of the films. Mm-hmm. Boba Fett's another great example of that. Greedo. I mean, a lot of these characters that were just almost, you know, blink and you miss it type thing. Yeah. Uh, because this trilogy clicked so well with the audience at the time, there was such a, a hunger for more between the original Marvel comic run that lasted, I don't know, 120 or something issues, a long time. The novels that came later. Uh, some of the cartoons, TV specials, TV shows, whatever, the, you know, and, and the video games too, really, this world has been so fleshed out mm-hmm. for something that really, you know, for all said and done, for the longest time, uh, had three movies that were a little over two hours each. Yeah. So six, seven hours of content mm-hmm. that just blossomed into this huge thing. Well, then, you know, dip back in for the, the prequel trilogy, another seven hours or whatever. Um, but now, again, the animated series, the cartoon, I mean, it's it has spawned so much uh, because it was such fertile ground and had so many things that you could almost take any one of those characters and just kind of go off in, in a direction. I mean, the bit when um, Darth, you know, cuts off Luke's hand, the hand, the lightsaber go falling. There's an entire storyline right there. What happens yeah. to the hand? What happens to the lightsaber? Yeah, I wondered about the lightsaber personally. And in that expanded universe that up until this uh, new trilogy that we're starting to get from Disney, um, the expanded universe existed. They've kind of, th- I don't say thrown it out, but said, hey, that's not part of canon now. So they can have mm. free reign for the movies. Okay, makes sense, unfortunately. But in that expanded universe that prior to that decision was considered canon, a clone of Luke was made off of that hand. Oh, wild. Yeah. Uh, I forget exactly what happens with the clone, but the real Luke winds up getting a lightsaber back, gives it to a character called Mara Jade, uh, which becomes later his wife. Hmm. You know, so there's, again, this whole canon of, of other stuff mm-hmm. 
that spawns out of, in some cases, I don't say throwaway scenes. That was certainly not a throwaway scene. No, no. But throwaway body parts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it just shows how, again, how these movies just connected with everybody and, and whatnot and how they grew. And while this was a good film, I... I'm not really personally seeing it as the best of of even this trilogy. Well, I was going to say, it's a really good film because of the film before it. Yes. And I guess in that respect, it's a good sequel or a good second film. But standing alone, I don't know how I would view it quality-wise. Because I can only view it with the other one and say, I like it because I liked the other one and the two work so well together. No, and that's a a very good point because going into this, if you're just starting at Hoth and you don't have the previous stuff, you don't know who these characters are. You would know that, okay, Luke and Han have a relationship. You, You start to see what the relationships are going forward, but you haven't seen them in action. You haven't seen kind of how they got there. I don't think I think if you saw this movie first, you would think Han and Luke are longer li- longer term friends than they are. Yes. And tighter friends than they are. I-, I think they give you what you need. I don't think they rest on the backstory as much as, say, your typical almost Star Trek novel or, or whatnot would. Mm-hmm. And granted, the same thing would be true for your typical Star Wars comic or, or novel as well. Mm-hmm. If- you know who Luke, Leia, Han, and all those are. Yeah. Um, but I think here they at least tried to reestablish stuff. Did a decent job. Mm-hmm. But nothing that really, like with Han's character, sets him up as overly heroic uh, in this film. I think the going out and saving Luke. Going out saving Luke, getting him out of the ship. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. You're right. You're right. You. They did quite a bit here. But the saving Luke is part of where it makes it feel like they've been friends forever. They die for one another is the way that comes across mm-hmm. versus having just watched the other film. I'm like, haven't they only known one another a couple months? Because, I mean, the, the trailing text tells me time has passed between movies. I don't yes, know how much. That's true. That's true. Although it's funny, this this film really takes place in the span of a few days at most. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long Luke was, was on Dagobah training, but I read that scene at the end of everybody had finally regrouped at the Rendezvous point after leaving Hoff. Yeah. And nobody was panicked of, oh, you survived. Yeah. So I don't think that much, t- I mean, a week, absolute tops, and even that I think is stretching it. Yeah. So the real question of how much time has passed is how much was between movies. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, that's ambiguous. But even in yeah. this, it's ambiguous how much time has passed, but days at most. Yeah. And there were a couple of things where where time passing and, and things changing, particularly Dagobah, the X-Wing, it looks fine when we look at it, and then suddenly it's like completely underwater. <clears throat> yes. I didn't hear a splash or anything. It's like, what happened there? No, wait. You had to put up with my verbal protests during the movie. Okay. As I often do. Yes, yes, as you often do. But he crashes there. He gets a few things out of the cockpit. I'm okay with that. A few things. But then suddenly he's got these ginormous crates of supplies. He's gotten a bag or two out, walks over, and suddenly there are all these boxes. And I'm like, (laughs) where did those come from? Those could not have fit in the cockpit. And then when he's putting them in later, he's putting them in underneath. 
in the part that was submerged in water. Yeah. And what gets me there is he's putting one in, and at no point do we hear any kind of hydraulic closing of a hatch or anything. Mm -hmm. He's ready to take off. It's closed up. It's just magic. You know, those are minor continuity things. It really doesn't matter, but it is kind of funny. Uh, This was another one where we got uh, Luke having a grappling gun kind of a thing to get into Mm -hmm. the uh, the AT-AT walker or whatever. I kind of like that. Uh, that was that was well done. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things, given how much they were flying by the things, if blasters aren't going to cut it at the beginning of the movie with these AT-ATs, fine, just drop rocks on them. You're flying close enough. Well, that was why I didn't understand if tripping them suddenly makes it possible to blow them up with blasters. Why weren't we just blasting at the top of them instead of straight on? If, but- uh, if basically throwing a, a hand grenade into it will destroy the thing. Why not just, you know, carpet bomb it from above? Yeah, Sam. Or even carpet bomb in front of the legs, mm. causing things and, and trip them or something. I mean, there are a lot of options. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll get more of not so much the full four-legged ones, but the, uh, the, the two-legged ones in the next film with Endor. Yeah, we saw a little bit of the two-legged ones here. Not much, but a tiny bit. And again, they're cool-looking things. Uh, the whole Hoth battle was, was fun. It was mm-hmm. Oddly choreographed, but well done, because there are a couple of times, it's like, they're running. It's like, are they attacking? Are they retreating? Yeah. They could have established some of that a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things where I think the prequel films had a huge advantage with the computer effects. Yes. Both the the robots and the, the clones and stuff like that, but also just you can really pre-visualize the layout of the fight a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays out. Yeah. Uh, it on screen as a result much better. So this one had some fun moments. It was good, but just the characters spent too much time apart. There was a bit more flying around for the sake of flying around almost. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have as clear of a through line. The, the heroes seemed incredibly reactive the entire time. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. hiding. They've been found. They go run off. Luke runs off from them running off. You know, okay, well, they've they've escaped the Empire again, you know, whatever. I mean, can, conceptually, I suppose Luke's journey was supposed to be training with the Force and finding the Force. I almost want to say within himself, only at this point we're being told the Force is all around you. But he doesn't complete the training. Doesn't complete the training, and the training could only last so long. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the timeline with Han and Leia and stuff, at what point did they seem to be just flying for a day or two on end? Never. Yeah. I mean, if you go with just Luke's timeline on this, a week could have passed. If you go with, with uh, the, the Falcon and stuff, they don't even seem to spend overnight in Cloud City. Oh, and for the record, those uh, were they the Death Stars, the big ships. No, they- Star Destroyers. Star Destroyers. There you go. Sorry. Death Stars are the big yeah, round ones. Yeah, that's what I thought. We'll get another one next film. Okay. Well, the Star Destroyers- they put out really big pieces of trash. They do. But I liked how the, the cruisers or whatever from the first film, which dwarfed the, the ship Leia was on, were equally dwarfed by Vader's ship. And I swear when they were throwing out the trash, it's like, well, we had a couple of, you know, fighters that are, we're just junking those. They're total. Throw them out. Yeah, pretty much. How can you build things in that scale when you're... You're throwing away resources like the metal and stuff. You're not even melting it down and rebuilding it. Presumably, you could just toss it near the engine. It would melt down and you could recast it. Yeah. 
So I thought that was funny. Uh, Boba Fett, you know, following him, of course. That that whole thing is is classic. I would have appreciated when the Millennium Falcon dives towards the ship, but then somehow magically latches on. Seeing that maneuver, yes, because I, agree. I, I just don't see how that how the ship could have pivoted that way, hooked on without getting noticed. Magic and a lack of windows on the ship. Yeah, definitely on the the backside of it. Well, and lack of windows, lack of any kind of of radar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did find it interesting to mention that they the ship's too small to have cloaking technology, a cloaking device. Yeah, which of course cloaking devices were originated over in Star Trek. And ships that size could have had one. Yeah, well, you know. And I don't think we ever see a ship in the Star Wars universe that does cloak. Not sure. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Because uh, clearly there is such technology. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I like the film. The uh, the effects here, while uh, beefed up, were not done in such a gratuitous manner as some of the changes to the first film. mm um, you know, we just have, you know, random creatures walking around or whatnot. Yeah. And we never really had the equivalent of a cantina scene. Agreed. So I think the number of aliens we see here is, is reduced from previous films. Yeah. But again, just walking around Cloud City, we saw a bunch. Mm-hmm. But they weren't as obvious. There were a couple where we had a, a bunch of little short guys walking yeah. in front of them at one point. And, but there were other times Cloud City was just vacant. Yeah. It was vacant, and other times it was a mad stampede when, when Lando was like, ah, oh, the, the Empire's coming in, you, you might want to leave. Yeah. I will create some chaos for us to get lost in. That's one reading. The other reading is he was actually trying to do well by his people. Yes. I write both ways, actually. Yeah. Same here. And it comes down to his characterization. is He's very much cut from the same cloth as Han Solo. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why the two got along as well as they did and didn't. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, having set up that he was the previous owner of the Falcon, mm-hmm. you know, nice touch. Uh, I don't know if Billy D. Williams is reprising his role in the new films or not. I hope so. He's he's too good of a character not to have come back. I agree with that. But while a lot of people think this is one of the, the best films of the bunch, um, for me, it's certainly a, a well above average film, but not... Uh, again, not the one I would say. I mean, for me, it's either the first or the third in this bunch. Yeah, he's not in the new film. Oh, that's unfortunate. He did Lego Star Wars Droid Tales and Star Wars Rebels and Star Wars Detours, but those are all TV series. Huh. Well, they've got five or six other films coming up for him to be in. Yeah. So, they've but, got time. Yeah, that's a shame, because that was one of those characters that really stuck with you when you came out of the movie. He was well introduced. Uh, mm-hmm. His his nature was very clear. The fact he was between a rock and a hard place was clear. And the mm-hmm. fact he was, particularly at the end, trying to do right. Yeah, yeah. The This deal just keeps getting worse. And I'm going to try and get everyone out here the best I can. And seeing him put the tracking device on Han. Well, and there's a certain amount of cut your losses and move on. This isn't working. Switch tactics. Yeah. You know, he's not locked into a, a, a certain course of action. Yeah. And the whole bit when the, the light drive doesn't, hyperdrive or whatever doesn't work, it's like, they told me it fixed it. It's not my fault. Yeah. Very much like Han earlier in the film. It was. Yeah. So, it's like the, the Falcon attracts a certain type of pilot. <laughs> yes. Um, well, the only other thing I was going to mention was that I read John Carter well after 
uh, the Edgar mm. Rice Burroughs book or series well after I saw this trilogy. And there are just a lot of things from John Carter of Mars that seem to be drawn on as inspirations for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was one of the original kind of pulp sci-fi kind of heroes that when the movie finally came along, people were like, oh, well, I saw this in Star Wars. Never mind the fact Star Wars was created 67 years after the John Carter books. Yeah. Where all that stuff had happened. Yeah. I mean, John Carter of Mars has the ancient religion that everybody's heard of, but most people don't actually understand, mm -hmm. even if they blindly follow and believe in aspects of it, complete with the losing a hand and just so many of the different things you see in Star Wars. The different creatures, uh, all of that kind of a stuff. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, of parallels between the two, intentionally so. Yeah. With Star Wars being the, the arguably the derivative one. And I say arguably because... While it leans on that, I don't think it was stealing directly from. No, but there's a lot to be said by when you want to write something really good, read something really good. It will help you rise to your best level. Well, understand what's gone before in that genre, what's worked, what hasn't, what you like, what you don't, mm -hmm. and uh, ring true to, to the, the best parts of it. Yeah. And I think... That was, was one of the many reasons this trilogy really clicked uh, so well with the audience at the time and has continued to, to, to stay resonant. Um, but also I think there was a, a hunger for this sort of swashbuckling, uh, space action stuff. Well, cause really prior to this, I would say you'd almost got to go back to Flash Gordon in the fifties. Yeah. And I think with the band of characters we have in Star Wars, they kind of hit on something for everyone. They've got Leia for the girls to relate to. And then they've got kind of both kinds of guys. They've got the city boy in Han Solo. And they've got the rural suburban boy Well, and it Skywalker. gives the older brother, younger brother dynamic there. It gives you the possibility of the love triangle. You've got 3PO, which is kind of the woe is me, the sky is falling sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Chewie, the, the proverbial best friend or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you've got a lot of, of, of key relationships just to build on and, and work with there. And in a small enough group that it doesn't feel overwhelming when they're all in the same place, yet big enough you can go split them off and, and say, well, how do these two interact? Yeah. So I do think that the group dynamics of the series is well done. Yeah. And it, so well done that even when they bring in a character that's substantively a a carbon copy of Han Solo with Lando, he doesn't feel that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is overlapping the two characters. If they had basically gone through this, not had uh, uh, Lando, and then in the next film suddenly Lando's there, mm -hmm. and we don't have Han, it's like, well, that was just a drop-in replacement. They recast the character. Yeah, well, and instead they brought in Lando almost like he and Han are two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. And well, seeing, again, another kind of brother-rival dynamic there. Yeah, seeing the two together was great fun. And also made you feel like you got a glimpse of Han's life before Luke. Absolutely. We start to get the, oh, well, he would have forgotten about that. That was a long time ago kinds of lines. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things where certain lines of dialogue imply a lot of backstory. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's part of why that expanded universe was able to happen so well. Yeah. Because there were a lot of things to draw on. It's like, ooh, that's an interesting line. I wonder if. 
Mm-hmm. You know, how did that come to be? What caused that line to happen? Yeah. And these movies did a great job with that. Other shows, other movies just aren't as rich in that respect. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fun stuff. Um, I'm going to be curious when we get around to watching the the prequel films, if those are going to resonate a little bit better with me than some of these are. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying these. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm also thinking some of the fight sequences we get in the, the prequel films are brilliant. Uh, in one or two cases, some of the plot lines we get uh, mm-hmm. much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, we what we're watching now is what made all of that other stuff possible. See, and I agree with a lot of that. And yet, I remember when I got to the end of the prequel films thinking, I liked The Force better in the original movies. And like here, when Luke uh, tells Londo, may the Force be with you, they're I don't want to say there was a purity, but a simpleness to the Force in this trilogy. I would agree with that entirely. The whole midichlorians thing, I think, is ridiculous. But even regardless of that, where you can scan for the Force and all of that, Mm -hmm. here it's treated as a faith, a religion. When somebody says the Force is strong in that one, Mm -hmm. they could be talking euphemistically or or, Mm -hmm. uh, empirically. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. But there's a certain... uh, to use their terms, hokey religion, ancient religion, you know, that aspect to it, the mysticism there, mm-hmm. which I think makes it play better. And even when Luke and Dagobah say, oh, you're asking for the impossible. I can't possibly lift that. It's too big. And then Yoda just, you know, floats it up, moves mm-hmm. it over type thing. Well, and Yoda has some good lines about, you know, do you think because I'm small, I can't handle the force or I can't handle a great amount of the force. Oh, there's a lot of looks can be deceiving. Yeah. You have to believe you've got to have faith. Mm-hmm. There's a bit stronger of that kind of a message in this trilogy. Yeah. Well, and this movie was very big on if you think it's impossible, you can't do it. Yeah. You know, when Luke says, I don't believe it, Yoda's like, that's why you failed. Yeah. And that may be one of the best exchanges of the film mm-hmm. in terms of something that people can come out of the film with and just carry into their own lives. Well, and one of the fun things about this uh, trilogy is there's just so many, I don't want to say great lines, Mm. but memorable moments that make the lines great. Yes. The I've got a bad feeling about it. There are Mm -hmm. other kind of uh, almost cliche lines that it's not like the line is just, oh, wow, that was a brilliant turn of phrase or anything, but it's so evocative. It's so well used. It's a good callback to a previous scene, Mm -hmm. seeing characters flip the usage of it and stuff. It's just fun. They're yeah. signature lines. Yeah. And I think people sometimes lose fact, uh, lose sight of the fact that the power in the line, again, isn't just the line, the delivery, but the moment. Yeah. That 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 it sums up. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think if there were any lines in this film that we hadn't got in previous in the previous film. You know what I mean? It was just... Uh, well, Yoda has quite a few, but there's like a try not do yeah uh yeah there is no try do or do not yeah and again his his uh order of words stuff like that is part of what makes his uh dialogue so unique unless he's got an extended amount where he's going to talk normally yeah well you know so there's there's certain narrative practicalities i think to be had there too yeah Uh, one line of dialogue i do want to mention um one, because it's often misquoted, even by the actor who gave the line. Uh, the line is, no, I'm your father. Oh. 
and it's often misquoted as Luke, I am your father, including once or twice by um, James Earl Jones. Oh, how funny. But apparently from uh, the IMDb page, when they were filming that, uh, there were – first off, there were some problems after the first film of when they would go to a location and they knew they were doing a Star Wars film, suddenly the local prices were, were rising. Mm. Star Wars, money's no object for them. So Blue Harvest was what a lot of this was shot under the name of because that's just another film. How funny. But there was also concerns about uh, story leaks. And, I mean, today that's 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 a given. Yeah. Which is a shame. But to the point that different actors were given different copies of the script with different things just to see who was leaking what. Oh, how funny. And the that whole scene, uh, David Proust, I believe the line he was given to say was, Obi-Wan killed your father. Hmm. And he was kind of miffed afterwards because he would have done different physical acting if he'd known what the line was. Mm-hmm. And I think – Mark Hamill was told after it was shot, before the movie was released, James Earl Jones, obviously, when he was doing the dubbing, had to do it. But he's like, ah, I think it's a lie, you know? Yeah. So even the actors weren't totally sure of what was going on in places. Mm. And I concede the need for it, the, the danger with spoilers, whatever. But it, it to me, it's a sad comment on our society. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, because we watch everything on, on tape delay with DVR, it's easy to avoid uh, commercials. You know, I don't really watch trailers uh, for the most part. There are a couple I have, but I haven't done that for the new Star Wars film. And, you know, I, I don't hit the various news sites on the web that would be telling me, oh, this is happening, this is happening. I know bits and pieces, but not enough to ruin the movie. Well, more and more, I've gotten to where I avoid a lot of those things and. I started avoiding trailers and commercials for movies specifically when it started feeling like they were so heavily influenced by the marketing department as opposed to the creative forces on the film. So I yeah. didn't feel like I was getting an accurate pitch for the film. Either you don't get an accurate pitch or you get too accurate of a pitch and you pretty much know the film. Yeah. There are times I want to know the gist of it. Oh, it's an action adventure. It's going to be this whatever. Okay, got it. Yeah. You know, with uh, the new trilogy, okay, they've got the original actors involved. They're going to be some new characters. That's that's really all I need to know. Yeah. You know, now with the prequel films, I went in hoping to find out what made these films. Mm -hmm. You know, how did Darth Vader become Darth Vader? How did Luke and Leia become Luke and Leia? Yeah. What set up these events? Yeah. And that colored whether or not I was happy with those films. I think there is a potential, uh, always has been and always will be, but I think it, it the, the level of potential changes. For somebody to do a documentary style history of the Empire mm. the Rebellion sort of a deal mm -hmm. uh, of just this is what happened and almost the, uh, the History Channel version of it. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain parts, it's like, well, when did certain things happen? No. You know, uh, the Senate getting chalked out, the, the, you know, how strong is the Empire and the Rebel at various points? Because it's, it's unclear. Mm hmm. You know, and that to me is part of this is it seems like we just dealt in the first movie a huge blow to the Empire. Yet the Empire is still chasing and almost eradicating the Rebels. Yeah. So it, we almost never get a far enough back glimpse in this trilogy to really understand the, uh, 
the galactic politics and uh, the state of 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 the galaxy. Mm, agreed. Yeah, we know what's going on with these characters. That's really all that matters. And we know from this film that being an admiral is really bad for your life expectancy. We do learn a lot about promotions in the Imperial Navy. <laughs> we do. You don't want one. Uh, there's there's two career paths. <laughs> those which get you towards Vader, those that do not. Yes. They do not longer lived. Yes. Yeah, he uh, he kills quite a few people. And including one remotely over a television screen. That I found very interesting. Yeah. Um, the force was strong in him at that moment. Well, it also implies that it's not just line of, of direct sight. Yeah. So, good to know in case you ever run into an evil Sith Lord. That's not on my bucket list, but I'll keep it in mind. Good to know. Anything else on this film? I think that's it. Time for the next one, then. So we have just finished watching Return of the Jedi. This one, uh, obviously, final movie of the original trilogy, had some of my favorite action scenes of the whole thing. I would agree with that. Uh, I love the bit at the beginning with uh, the whole getting Han out of Jabba's place, the Luke walking the plank, you know, doing the flip. R2 shooting in the lightsaber. That whole bit was great. Had some great comedic moments. Mm -hmm. Good use uh, of Londo, of Han, Chewie, everybody, uh, both the droids. Um, so to a certain degree, I mean, as much as I love the first one, and it's it's a great film, this is probably one of my favorite films. Well, you were summing up, and I totally agree. The first movie is The Hero's Journey. Mm -hmm. This is an entirely different movie, and I'm wondering what category... It is. It falls into. And it isn't because there are a lot of callbacks to the first film. True. The droids walking in the desert. Mm-hmm. You know, um, trying to think of some other classic ones. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. Again, the Millennium Falcon, you know, blowing up the Death Star, being heavily involved in that process at the end. A lot of, of thematic similarities, I think, to the first film. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the second one, again, kind of left things hanging this had a very clear sense of resolution again the whole ending sequence here with the celebration and stuff very much akin to the first film yes you know there's also an aspect of how not interchangeable some characters are but how this is a generally more movie about plot than characters we never get the ewoks named at all true as ewoks or as individuals true uh londo's co-pilot doesn't seem to have a name Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of characters that serve key and vital roles in the plot, but as people, we're left to speculate about everything. Yeah. You know, Londo's co-pilot, why him? Where did he come from? Has he worked with Londo before? Is he just another one of the Rebellion? I mean, yeah. what happened to Lobot? Yeah. Presumably he didn't make it off Cloud City, don't know. Well, he certainly didn't make it off with them. No. In the no. Falcon, we know that much. Yeah. But I think he would have been, when Londo had made the, hey, everyone evacuate in the last movie, would have would have gone at that point or had yeah. some kind of a plan. So, you know, this just had some, some fun stuff. Uh, the action sequences um, at the end, both the, the ship combat was, was well done. I love Ewok combat. Uh, the Ewok combat was well done, yeah. 
I mean, I just, I love how resourceful they are and what they're able to do with spears, with rocks, with slingshots, mm-hmm. the catapults. At a low level of technology, being able to take out the the walkers and those uh, stormtroopers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, they're clearly not unknowledgeable about technology. When the one hops on the speeder bike, he knew how to start it. Yeah. So they've encountered it, they've watched, they've learned. They may not have built any of this. Mm-hmm. They may not have embraced it as part of daily life, but they aren't, I almost want to say they aren't Amish. They don't see it as taboo, forbidden, we refuse to touch it. They're not a cargo cult where cargo planes, like in World War II or whatever, would drop stuff. Uh, indigenous people who had been cut off from the rest of society or whatever didn't know what those were. And they would start worshipping the planes and stuff like that. They would True. do stuff to uh, that was uh, that looked like the things, not understanding how they worked. Yeah. None of that here. The the Ewoks, again, knew how to how to work the, the speeder bikes. They they planned ahead, they work well as a group, they had catapults, they had a primitive level of technology, but an intelligence capable of understanding and more mm-hmm. advanced level of technology. Well, and they understood strategy, etc. Yes. Mm-hmm. That they did. And it was just a a fun film. Again, we talked about this some with the last one. An indeterminate amount of time happens between films. Mm-hmm. And at first, it looks like Luke had gone back for training. Yeah, he's got a great deal more confidence in his use of the Force. Confidence, a certain polish, a certain level of advanced knowledge that he didn't seem to have before. Mm-hmm. But then he goes back to Yoda, you know, to fulfill that promise of returning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there seems to be a self-study program. Yeah. And it would have been nice if there had at least been references from Obi-Wan or from Yoda of just practice those those things I've told you. Mm-hmm. Well, and I liked the comment, I think it was from Vader, of uh, you made yourself a new lightsaber. Yes. And the comments along the lines of that's part of what makes a Jedi a Jedi. That they and the force they have within themselves combine to make their own lightsaber. If we had at least seen Luke tinkering at some point at the end of the last movie, beginning of this, something. Yeah. Some reference as to how the thing works or mm-hmm. it's just boom, he's got a new lightsaber. And when did he have the time? Yeah. Because it doesn't feel like much time has elapsed from the last film to this film. So there are a couple of things there that, that you know, if you really dig deep into the, the, the plot, the story, it's like, I, I don't get how that works. Mm-hmm. But while this is something that focuses more on the plot, it's an action adventure film. It's not like it's a mystery where the plot's got to be iron tight or, or, you know, watertight or whatever. Yeah. So I'm willing to give it a little bit of, of leeway in that regard. Well, and it's a fun ride, which... Absolutely. I think that ups the quality of the film, if you will, substantially. If there were times when the action's going along and for some reason you're not enjoying the ride, you come out saying, yeah, I feel like I was just on a roller coaster, but I was bored. The other thing about the ride in terms of this one, we get a really good opening sequence with them rescuing Han. So they're proactive. We've got a sense of of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Then they've found out about the new Death Star. They go after it. And again, we get various pieces of accomplishment leading up to it blowing up and whatnot. Whereas in the last film, everything with Empire was very reactive. Yes. They're being hunted by the, the Empire. 
They're reacting to, you know, first Luke to the, the, the meteor coming down, then them realizing it was a droid, then, you know, Luke's in danger. Now we got to run, you know, get off Hoth. Okay, we're being chased, yada, yada, yada. And they, they were not really in control. They didn't have a mission, uh, which is, I think, the difference of that film and these two, the first and the third, mm-hmm. the other two uh, in this trilogy. And having them moving forward of their own volition versus, again, being chased, uh, to me, is a, a fundamental difference. Well, it made all of the characters come across with a greater sense of self-confidence, mm-hmm. as well as confidence in their rebellion and in the success of what they were doing. The part that left me kind of with the, okay, we've gone back to this five or six times, let's do something with it, was when Luke was with the Emperor and Darth Vader watching the fight unfold. Mm-hmm. And they're they're saying, by getting angry, you'll be embracing the dark side, as if there's only one type of anger and it's an evil type, as if you can't be angry in a frustrated manner or a sad manner or channel that in any kind of a positive way right that the only kind of anger they could grasp was evil and vengeful we never in these films get enough of the philosophy between the jedi and the dark side Mm -hmm. to really understand if that's truly how the, the force works Mm-hmm. Or just a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, and I personally like what Obi-Wan says here and how I took what he had said in the first movie. And even Darth Vader says, you know, Anakin Skywalker died long ago. It's a name I haven't answered to since, etc. And the dark side seems to be not just the evil side because that's not right. It's not exactly a possession, but it's another you. Yeah, but it's when we watched Librarians, we talked about the episode where there was the object that brought out the worst mm-hmm. you, and that's kind of the dark side. I would actually say, in terms of TV shows we've watched recently, the one that comes to mind is Dark Matter, where you've got kind of uh, the amnesia and then there's a new you. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes to that sense of identity. Anakin and Darth Vader are physically the same person. Yeah. But mentally, very different. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, at what point are they the same and, and, and not the same? Well, and part of it is how you choose to respond to events that we will hopefully see in the prequels. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where we see him faltering, I guess you would say. And when he could have stayed on a better path... He is lured by the dark side. That's going to be one of the things that I think will be fun when watching the prequels again, is just at what point did things become kind of cast in stone, the die is cast, they've crossed that Rubicon, they're going into this, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no turning back now. Yeah. You know, obviously, you've got uh, the Emperor. Yes. Who's, who's got his own machinations and there's certain things, so he's a driving force. But for, for Darth, at what point, you know, was is there going to be a moment we see, because it's been a while since I've seen those films, where he's he's made that turn? Well, and the dark side seems to me to start out as temptations and go, taking the easier way out 
at times Mm -hmm. instead of staying true to morals and following the harder path. Well, it's one of those things where being a time travel buff, if somebody further down the timeline in Star Wars knew of all of these things, what would be that moment they would go back to try to change? It's an excellent question. You know, because it could be if you simply kill the emperor before he rises to power. Mm-hmm. Does that make things better? Does it make it worse? Well, um, Time travel, though, is not the kind of thing that you, they typically do in Star Wars. Oh, agreed. Wholeheartedly. But looking at the trilogy we've just watched, if you had a time traveler and they went into here and they went back to the fight where Darth Vader removes uh, Luke's hand mm-hmm. and lightsaber and somehow prevented that fight, I think things would turn out differently. Because I think that was a critical moment for Luke Skywalker. Well, certainly when he cuts off Darth's hand, realizes it was robotic, and there's a sense of history repeating itself. But from the moment he gets the replacement hand, we don't see much in that movie. But throughout this movie, he's wearing a black glove, like Darth Vader's gloves. Uh, he does that specifically after he gets injured in the uh, the opening sequence. Yeah. And it, whether it's meant to be or not, it just seems to be that, that reminder that the dark side's trying to grab hold of him. I also took his attire at the beginning, the black outfit, the hooded robe, mm-hmm. to and be the, very dark side-ish. The approach to Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a certain part of, has Luke already been going down that path? Mm-hmm. You know, but the other thing I was going to say with the time travel is that simply not something they tend to do in the Star Wars universe, because while it's got the jetpacks, the ray guns, the spaceships, it's frankly more of a fantasy, science fantasy sort of a thing than a true science fiction. Mm -hmm. They've got droids, but there's nothing about human rights for droids, should they be treated better. There's not the, 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 the moral dilemmas, the philosophical debates, not just about mm-hmm. droids, but about, you know, the the different races and all of that stuff. None of the typical themes and uh, moral conundrums that would well, come up in a Star Trek show. And even more basically, there's a lot less techno babble. There's not. Well, there's a jargon to their universe, but not a techno babble. And their techno babble, uh, you're right. It's not techno babble, it's jargon. There's talk about the different parts of the Falcon, how you've got to replace this, that, and the other. But it's like, hey, you know, the gasket blew in the the engine. We've got to replace replace the carburetor, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally different, I think, than, you know, how would you, you know, reroute whatever you would need to on the Enterprise through the deflector dish to do this kind of a science thing to, to prevent that kind of anomaly or whatever. Exactly. To prevent an anomaly, to scan a quasar sun. I mean, they start coming out with all these terms that I didn't know could go together or believe could go together. There's a difference between referencing the name of a part and it needs replacing than trying to cobble together a new device from existing pieces of old ones and a problem-solving science sort of attitude. Yeah. You know, what, what Han is doing with the Falcon is so fundamentally different than what Scotty or LaForge would do to the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And again, there's nothing right or wrong about either approach. No, but I find a show with no techno babble much easier to watch when I'm tired. True. <laughs> but there's an aspect of Star Trek that I love 
when they do that, hey, we've got this, this, and that. If you know, we could probably do this with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that kind of a thing. It's dangerous for writers to do this because they can write themselves into corners or, you know, I mean, really weird situations if, if somebody takes it and runs with it. But with Star Wars, they've got all this technology. They can build Death Star planets apparently out of nothing. Um, yet, you know, we never see uh, any of any almost any trickle down of this i mean droids exist and it's weird because you've got junked versions you've got repair of them and stuff but you've also got uh robotic limbs that are are you know indistinguishable from real ones yet that doesn't translate to the the droid industry for some reason Mm -hmm. you've got you know the the various space uh ships and speeder bikes and whatnot but there's also a level of most of the societies we see in these films, certainly Tatooine, that's almost medieval mm-hmm. in level of technology and and uh, uh, day-to-day life. Yeah. You know, and again, that's something I've always struggled with, just that juxtaposition in Star Wars of, you know, uh, being able to take parts, build a sentient android, and yet you're still, you know, scavenging for, for food, it seems like. Yeah. You know, certainly the looking at the Jawas and, you know, they're they're scrounging for existence it seems like compared to what they've got uh, what they're scrounging you know, with the droids and stuff. Mhm. Um and again, we never even if we hadn't gotten the technobabble around the lightsaber. It's just yeah, Luke's got it, it's done. Yeah. It's not relevant to the story or even the philosophy of this universe or well, the DNA of it, I should say. I had wondered where do you go get the weapon that is proof, if you will, that you are a member of a religion that was wiped out 20 years ago? Well, you make it. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. We never even see anywhere to go buy blasters. No. But everybody's got one. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's that's interesting. And Tatooine would have been a, a perfect place to have you know, seen something like that. Yeah. Well, and again, Jabba, uh, Jabba's place at the beginning of this film had a very uh, primitive feel to it. Primitive feel with high-tech electronic doors. Uh, a was, droid or whatever at the the door, yeah. Well, but the doors, they had the electronic uh, controls. Yes. And so it was an interesting mix. But, again, no sign of food anywhere to be had in his his main room, entertaining room or whatever. You've got the, the technology for the trapdoor or whatever, which goes to a pit with a monster. Mm-hmm. So again, some fairly basic stuff there. A monster that at least two of the guys seemed to feel was their pet. And oh, absolutely. Devastated when it I died. like that. I could see that. But in that room, people were just sleeping on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole concept of, of private quarters hadn't seemed to come in. Yeah. So the juxtaposition of, of the futuristic and the antiquated is part of what makes the 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 universe work. Mm-hmm. You know, you you try to analyze it too much. It's like, yeah, you just don't. Oh, I agree with that. And and certain parts, Tatooine, certainly on the low end of the technology spectrum, places like Cloud City, the high end. Yeah. You know, and then when we get into the the prequel trilogy with the uh, the Corsican and stuff like that, that's the 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 downtown big city planet. And we see that a little at the end when they go through the, the, the celebration that seemed to permeate around the galaxy instantly. Everybody wants to celebrate a good rebellion. Nobody wants to fight in it, though. 
Yeah, well, you know, it was a small rebellion. Very small rebellion, very big celebration. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that will be reflected in the uh, the future movies and that they're able to coast on this fame and, and hopefully fortune because I don't know how Leia was going to pay anyone. Her entire planet blew up. I know. That was very sad. Although was she clearly, she was on a diplomatic envoy for Alderaan in the first movie. Was her home planet really established anywhere in here? I don't think it technically was. It was it. It was strongly implied. That's the part that I find fascinating about these because we're in the the third movie here and Chewie pulls out the the bowcaster thing Mm -hmm. and he's shooting people and I'm like, you know, that's his signature weapon. And I think it's the first time we've seen it. Mm -hmm. I always wondered how a princess's brother wasn't a prince. Didn't know he was. And you only get the title if you're aware of it, I guess. But what is she a princess of? And why? Because apparently in the prequels, it's it becomes murky. If it had been because uh, of Alderaan, well, then it blew up. Shouldn't she be queen? So, again, she's princess of something. We never know what. And there are lots of those sorts of things that, you know, again, it goes to the roller coaster ride. When you're in it and on it and enjoying it, it really doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. a really fun set of movies. It's exciting. It's action, adventure. The plot holds together enough to get you through it, mm-hmm. but you then realize there's a lot of things you're just never told. Yeah. And some people, they, they never ask the questions, doesn't bother them at all. I'm the type that I'm inquisitive that way, I guess. But I think that's also, as we were talking about before, after the second movie, what has led to so many stories being told in this universe after the fact. Oh, agreed. Is there just so many characters that, again, uh, Londo's co-pilot you know, in that battle. What's his story? What's his name? What's his background? What's his race like, etc.? Boom, you could tell half a dozen to a dozen easily mm-hmm. just stories about that, just answering the questions or dealing with, not even answering, but dealing with the questions. Well, and going back to what we talked about previously, and you were saying mostly with Londo, it was the, if it can get worse, it will get mm-hmm. worse. In this movie, that popped into my head when uh, Han was trying to get them into the power oh, generator yeah, bunker. And to me, that was a fun thing. They're they're at the back door of the bunker that the Ewoks have gotten them to, and they're like, "Hmm, there's a, a computer thing. Let's have R two do it." Call back to the first film where he does that kind of a stuff, and it's pretty easy out. But also a call back to the second film when he accidentally plugs into a, a power outlet. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this time gets overloaded, almost fries or whatever, although he recovers quickly. Yeah, this time when he plugs in, no, one of the stormtroopers shoots him while he's plugged in. That's what fries him. I had taken it as he plugged into the wrong thing and and got overjuiced. You're right. Okay, fair enough. But either way, it's a recognition of, hey, we've done this before. That's too easy. Mm -hmm. But I like the fact that they address people and say, well, you've got R2. How come he can't just hack into it? Yeah. Well, and then Han says, well, I guess I'll have to hotwire it. Yeah. I love that. Now, what's interesting is he's saying that behind him, crouched right up next to the door, is Leia. Mm -hmm. She then says, I'll cover you in steps in front of him. Yes. Imagine how the scene would play out if she hadn't done that. He's fiddling with the wires, and suddenly doors slam shut that would have crushed her. Yes, that's true, too. There are a couple of times where, you know, just one little thing going differently and movie's over. Yeah, well, details. And this was another one where the height difference between uh, 
Leia and Han kind of changed a little in places, um, which which is fine. It's just kind of funny. Uh, I love the speeder bike stuff. Some of the, the stuff yeah. there was well done. There were a couple of places where the compositing didn't come across particularly well on the Blu-ray version we saw. Some of it with the speeder bike stuff, some of it on um, the Rebel base uh, before they take off or whatever. Maybe it was in the uh, the hangar bay, whatever, where we've got uh, Lando and Han talking about the Falcon. Yeah. And they're very clearly standing in front of a matte painting. Yeah. It was a good matte painting, but it was very clear that that's what it was. Or very... Yeah. Both the compositing was there and there wasn't the depth. Well, and I was going to say, that goes back to the more recent films have gotten really good about putting that depth into background art. Well, I think a lot of it is just how sophisticated 3D graphics technology has gotten, Mm -hmm. how widespread it's gotten. Very true. Because these films originally, this would have been 83 for the this last one, um, long before the the kind of computer graphics we would take for granted out of, say, you know, the morphing stuff from Terminator films and things of that nature. Yeah. But even the, the special edition stuff was, what, the mid-90s? Yes. So we're talking still 20 years back. I mean, these days we're watching stuff that can be done on home computers and on, on, we're seeing that on YouTube and stuff mm-hmm. and they can give primetime television a run for their money. Not yeah. always. Sometimes what you get, you see in that kind of realm sucks, but it comes down to talent, not tools. Yes. Whereas it used to be to do the sort of things that would be a Star Wars level production, you had to have access to a lot of stuff. Now, I think part of why we've seen that kind of growth is Star Wars for two reasons. One, it's Star Wars. It's inspired generations, mm-hmm. I mean, multiple generations at this point. But two, there's also been, I mean, we've seen it at Comic-Con and stuff, the Star Wars fan film festival and stuff. Mm-hmm. Lucas would, you know, gives out awards for the really well done ones. Yeah. So there's a lot of recognition and acceptance of people doing these kinds of things by the property holder in this case. Yeah. And then you look at the uh, the CG cartoons and stuff like that. They're building up the model assets there. I mean, when they were doing these films, there's a certain cost to, okay, we've got to get that first X-Wing built. Okay, now we've got X-Wings. Mm-hmm. Got to get that, that digital version of an R2 unit or whatever. Now we've got those. Well, and just because they had done the uh, Death Star before... Kind of helped them, but not entirely, because this one was under construction. Mm-hmm. So it was like a third of it was sort of missing, but not quite, because it had, I don't want to say scaffolding. But if it were a digital model, mm-hmm. they could have just said, okay, highlight these things with a lasso, invisible. Yeah. Now, okay, let me just tweak it. I mean, yeah, there's a certain uh, of, uh, not economy of scale, but the more you you do stories using that technology, the more digital assets you've got, it's like building up that back lot. Mm-hmm. You build up the, 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 the facade once, it costs money, but you can use it forever. Yeah. And between Star Wars Rebels, Clone Wars, etc., not to say those are the exact models they're using, but it's at the very least maybe a starting point or mm-hmm. a reference point or something. Yeah. So they could be going into these, these uh, new movies with a set of digital assets not only just from those but potentially the games or other places 
or at the very least, even if they don't take the digital assets, you've got an entire generation of computer artists that have built, in some cases, these specific things. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need to rebuild it for a particular uh, piece of software or a particular use case or whatever, but it really um, just changes the game quite a bit in that respect. But a lot of my favorite shots here were more practical effects. Mm. Granted, mm. there may have been wire work or whatever when Luke's flipping around or whatever. Um, well, the fight at the end with Darth Vader had some nice flips and moves. Yes. One of the things I did notice, though, is the lightsaber in this movie seemed to have been uh, blunted or whatever. Mm. Because particularly, not so much, I mean, the bit at the end when it's saber against saber, it works the way it always did. But, um, and, you know, uh, Darth was able to cut down the scaffolding, things like that. When Luke was using it at the beginning, he, I thought, was going to be slicing through people left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. But there's also a certain amount of, let's keep it all ages, let's not make it gory and disgusting, which I very much appreciate. Yeah. But when you first establish the weapon as something that is a, a slice-through kind of a thing, mm-hmm. not just like a... a, a, a force field that you're battering around yeah and if you've done that and it's just a solid energy that would work yeah and that was how it seemed to function at times yeah well and that scene where luke walked the plank and they Mm -hmm. had the flying ships effectively that was very reminiscent of quite a bit of stuff in the john carter stories the sail barges um Mm -hmm. it also went towards the swashbuckling yeah you know errol flynn kind of days yeah. And again, these movies are very much harkening back to those sorts of ideas and concepts. Well, and when you consider the groundbreaking nature of these movies when they first came out, mm-hmm. harkening back to things people were so familiar with was a really good idea. In terms of if you're going to shock the heck out of them on six different levels, Give them five different levels where they can just relax and go, but it was also familiar. I felt warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, some of these aliens, I think, would have, not many, but a couple fit in, you know, a Lord of the Rings kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. There was one alien that reminded me of Shrek for some reason. Which one? Uh, Near the door at Jabba the Huts. Those guards or whatever? Mm-hmm. Those are actually the ones I was thinking could have been in like a Lord of the Rings kind of a deal. To me, they they seem like something out of like an EverQuest or mm-hmm. one of those kinds of, of uh, online games. Mm-hmm. It's a classic trilogy. I thought this ended it very well. There were a few places here and there where in the special edition, they'd obviously made a couple of changes. In the second film, Boba Fett's line being spoken by the actor for Django mm-hmm. Fett or whatever in uh, the prequel trilogy, they redid a lot of the stuff for uh, the Emperor. Mm. here um to be by the guy who they later hired for uh the a younger version of the same character in the the uh, prequel trilogy when we see at the end the uh the jedi ghosts we get young anakin versus older anakin that we had gotten originally and some of that it's like it doesn't matter if they change it or not i go back to wanting to see kind of a side-by-side comparison of some of the stuff mm-hmm um, there's at some point going to come down to a, a choose your own Star Wars yes, kind of a thing. I like that version of that scene and I'll take the new version of that scene and, you know, kind yeah. of mix and match or whatever. 
Yeah. Well, there's going to be a generation that sees what we saw right now and thinks that's how it's always been. Yeah, and that kind of bothers me a little bit because, one, that's not how it's always been. There's a certain lack of, of authenticity and whatnot there. But I also concede the point that if you were to show them the original stuff with the effects feel dated, you know, and some of that stuff, I think you almost need to show both versions. Mm-hmm. And there are, again, certain parts of the uh, original effects that particularly if you uh, show, you know, a, a younger kid these days that stuff along with the making of featurettes. Mm-hmm. Here's where they've got the thing going down the wires. Let's blow up the model. Oh, we only have the one take. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain kids that would really, oh, wow, that's impressive. Oh, there's no, no, the other one looked better. Let's stick with that. Yeah. And again, neither right nor wrong, but I think we're at the point where I don't know if we're ever going to see another film that does the old school practical effects with miniatures and stuff like that for this. Yeah. It's... Just like we're probably never going to see a hand-drawn animated film. It's just not cost-effective. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make sense to do. And there's going to come a point where, well, not going to come a point, or I think we're at the point where if you've got the, the right talented people, spend the time and the money, you can do the, the computer effects to where you just can't tell that they're computer effects. Agreed. You know, it, it's just, do you spend that level of, of time, attention, and detail? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what modern effects can do with everything from the lightsaber, the droids on up and down. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the look of the aliens and the droids and whatnot were limited by what they could build. Yeah. What they could put somebody in a suit. Mm-hmm. Whereas now you put somebody in a mocap suit and you could have very smooth looking droids that are, you know, stick figures. Yeah. Now, smooth-looking droid, given how shaky, you know, uh, C-3PO walks, which, again, he's somewhat, I don't want to say uh, stiff-jointed, paralyzed, whatever, you know what I mean, versus, you know, Luke's got a hand that, that's indistinguishable from his own. Yeah. So some of the technology just doesn't transfer. It boggles my mind. So where would you rate this film compared to the other uh, ones in this trilogy? How would you rate rank the, the movies in this trilogy? I think I was happier with this one than two. I, I definitely was. So. Where would you put the first one? That's what I'm struggling over. To me, the the best film was this one. The second best was the first one. Because it had a complete story, beginning, middle, end, established the stuff. And then I would put uh, Empire, mm-hmm. the middle one. Now, I don't think there's a huge spread between those. Yeah. And I think all of them are, are well, well above average. I mean, I like Londo. I like Yoda. I like the Ewoks. And that gives Return of the Jedi that, that extra bump, if you will. Well, I liked how most of the characters were together in this film, whereas yeah. they weren't in the middle in, in Empire. Yeah. You know, Return of the Jedi, I think, just brings the group back together and gives it, it's a more focused story. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, it's a more forward story. Even in the first, there's a lot of reactiveness. Well, I think what has helped these movies withstand the test of time is the fact that all three of them, in the end, have good stories and mm-hmm. have good content. Well, and they had really good actors. Yes. 
you know, sometimes they got better performances out of the actors than others, but that's as much on the direction and mm-hmm. other factors as well. Mm-hmm. But they they had a group of people that could could make the material work. Yeah. And in the hands of, of lesser actors, even some of the great lines I don't think would have would have played out. Yeah. So I figure everyone who's listening to this episode has seen these films probably dozens of times. I certainly hope we don't have anyone who's gotten this far into the thing and hasn't watched them yet. Because uh, really, if 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 you don't know Star Wars, listening to a podcast isn't the way to do it. Spend the time, watch the the movies. Mm-hmm. They're they're classics. They're cultural touchstones. Mm-hmm. And the amount of of revenue generated from the films, the toys, the books, the games, the you know the comics, whatever, is just staggering. Yeah. I mean, the advice I give people, I joke, I got this advice from an excellent source. When you sit down to watch the movies, just remember the time they were made in, Mm -hmm. the time they were first seen, and view them from that perspective. Don't expect them to stand against a movie you saw in the theater this past week. View them from that perspective, but do not excuse them from that perspective. In other words, take into account they had different technology to work mm-hmm. with, less technology. Yeah. But if it still sucks. Oh, exactly. But understand when people say, Star Wars was the greatest movie ever made. And you say, but I saw a movie at the theater last week, which had better effects. Even a B movie these days has more technology, even a, a, a no budget type thing to throw at it than they had when they did these films. Yeah. Again, you uh, you look at what you can do with hell an iPad or an iPhone or you know much less a, a, a actual Macintosh operating system, Windows mm-hmm. operating system, all the you know Photoshop tools to 3D graphics to animation tools on up and down. That sort of a thing was was unthinkable when well, in '83 this film was being made. Back then, they were using actual film. Yes, it would have been before video, so. They would shoot a scene, and they wouldn't know until the earliest the next day if they got it on the film. Yeah. You know, to most people today, it's a, what do you mean they didn't just rewind and watch it? Well, and with the compositing stuff, you had to shoot the actors, you had to shoot the the background, you then Mm -hmm. had to go to the lab, have those things composited together, and then see how it looks. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got the green screen that everybody's got i mean even at home you could set one up um i've played around with that a time or two it's it getting it really well done not so easy but getting it done trivial mm-hmm. um but yeah you put the actors in front of it you key up the, the the background image and the thing and you're looking at it real time yeah you know and that's again just one aspect of it yeah. now you want to do a moving shot with those people walking down and have the background change you can do that too mm. So the the technology at our disposal, and I don't mean our as in society, but I mean if you go online, Blender is free software, so you can do 3D uh, uh, modeling and stuff like that. It gets a little more expensive or tricky when you want to do, okay, track the motion of the camera to, to get the background and stuff, mm-hmm. but even that, there are ways you can you can cheat. Yeah. So for home productions, it is obtainable and doable. If you spend the time, learn the skills, etc. So for a major motion picture like this, because I don't think you can get much more major than a Star Wars film. Definitely. Um, 
I mean, the the sky is the limit. It then just comes down to how creative are your people running this stuff and how good is your story and your actors. Yeah. So, uh, to me, the, the original trilogy is uh, kind of one of the must-watch uh, f- trilogy of films for uh, for science fiction fans, for movie fans. Yeah. Even if you don't like science fiction, it's had such a cultural impact. It's it's staggering. Um, we are going to do the prequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. We are planning on seeing uh, The Force Awakens when it comes out, so hopefully we'll get an episode up on, on just that one film uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, we're not going to go rush out, rush out and see it opening day. That's just crazy. And it may take a little bit after we've we've watched it to, to get the episode up, depending what else is on the release schedule. We will not hold, though, The Force Awakens for the other two films in the trilogy, although I do reserve the right to compile them all into one episode at the end. There you go. Just because I like how those images are, or episode mm-hmm. images are looking when I've got uh, a trilogy to, to cover. There you go. So anything else on this? I think that does it. So we're done with this trilogy. We are. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.